Thank you, Cole. Nicely done. It was a big text loaded with names, and uh, you, you did a good job. Thank you for reading. Uh, let me pray as we consider this uh, text this morning. Father, we give you thanks that you are actively at work in this world. Even though it feels at times as though things are falling apart, you are putting them back together. You're building your new creation with everything in orbit around you as king. We look forward to that kingdom. Help us to truly be an outpost of it as a church, as a congregation. And we pray that this, your word, would powerfully uh, speak to us. The preached word, we believe, is your word to us. So we pray that you, as your word always does, that it would change, that it would create, recreate us from the inside out. We ask for your spirit's presence and power, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. One of the things we say uh, often is that our sin is worse than we realize. It's far worse than we could, could even imagine, and yet God's love for us is far greater than we could ever imagine. We, lose, and we say that a lot, and the reason we say it is because those two truths are fundamental to situating us in the world. Like if we forget our sin, we're prone to fear. If we forget God's love, we're prone to, we're, we're prone to anxiety. If we forget our sin, we're prone to pride, really. And we're pr- prone to anxiety and fear if we forget God's love for us. And so we talk about these things quite a bit. The love of God and our own sin. And we're going to consider that this morning. I think this text invites us to. And my question for you is, what what does sin do to you? What does sin do to us? Here's what it does. It cuts and it bends. It cuts and it bends us. It cuts us off from life with God, which is our life source. It cuts us off from that, and it bends us in on ourselves. It bends us inward. You could think of a leaf on a tree just sucking up the life out of that tree, and it's flourishing, and it's waving in the wind, and it's green, it's pretty, and then it falls off. It falls off from its life source. It gets cut, and it falls to the ground. And what happens as it's cut off from its life source? It begins to bend. It begins to crumple begins to wither, to bend in on itself, okay? We're like that leaf. That's what sin has done. It's cut us off from God, and it bends us inward. Sin makes us selfish, not selfless, which is how we were created to be. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, selfishness contracts the heart and confines it to the self. Selfishness contracts the heart. It confines it to itself. Love, on the other hand, enlarges the heart and it extends it to others. Okay? Sin has cut us off from God. It's bent us in on ourselves and consequently, we're selfish. And it's not just individuals kind of walking around individually selfish. There's a a cumulative and compounding effect of, of this problem of sin. It, it impacts entire cultures, entire peoples. And, and I think you could make the case that our own culture is, is especially problematic. There's a guy named Thomas Dizengatita. 
He's a, uh, not a Christian, but a kind of a, a communication scholar. And he, he's written a wonderful book way back in 2005, so before the smartphone. And he's talking, it's called Mediated, and he's talking about how this virtual world that we kind of live in really bends us in on ourselves. He, he doesn't explain it that way, but that's what he's describing. He says, he says think about Times Square. Think about being in Times Square versus being like in the middle of the Rocky Mountains where it's a place that just exists and it doesn't really exist in reference to you. It exists in reference to not you. But you go to Times Square and he says everything is like, it's all aimed at you. There's these big screens and these tickers and these flashing lights and, it, and it's all these people appealing to you, your desires. This is what you need. This is what's going to satisfy uh, your desires. This is what's going to satisfy your lusts. This is what's going to fulfill your wishes. This is what's going to correct your fears and your anxiousness. And, and by the way, it's not just those messages coming at us. It's those messages coming at us from the most beautiful, the, the smartest, the most important people in the world are aiming those messages directly to us. He says that has an effect. That sort of elevates our sense of self-importance to have those messages coming. And here's the thing. Right now, we all walk around. I don't have mine with me right now. We have Times Square in our pocket. A little, a little phone that we open up. And it's even more, ta- it's even more aimed at you, right? Based on your, your search history or your, well, a conversation you had about needing some kind of thing, and there's an ad, there's a person saying, you, you need this, and this is how this is going to affect you, or help you, or whatever. So our own culture is amplifying what sin has done in bending us in on ourselves, telling us that the most important thing in our life is to think about what we need at any given particular moment in time. And this is what it leads to. Listen, listen to what uh, Shirley MacLaine says, the actress Listen to what she says about what this does, does to us. This is her observation after, you know, a long life. The only sustaining love involvement, she says, is with yourself. When you look back on your life and you try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, you look at your love affairs, you look at your marriages, you look at your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all of that closely, what you really find out is that the, the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only person you really dress is yourself. The only thing you have working to the consummation of your own identity is the self. And that's what I've been trying to do all my life. Live for me. It's an insightful statement. And it's what sin does. It cuts, and it cuts us off from God, and it bends us in on ourselves. Now, Psalm 1, which we referred to at the very beginning, speaks of the righteous and the blessed person who's not bent on themselves, but it, it, he describes it as a tree, right? That's uh, rooted in streams of water that grows up and out and becomes a blessing to its environment. That's what a tree is, right? It's a, it's a blessing. It makes 
homes for birds, and there's ecosystems that dwell in the tree. Its leaf doesn't wither. It bears fruit that people can take, and the creation can take, and, and, and enjoy. The, the righteous person, the way of the blessed person, is not a person living for themselves, but a person that becomes a blessing to others. The wicked, on the other hand, back in Psalm 1, remember how they're described in that psalm? Chaff. Chaff, which is something that's cut off, like a casing that's been cut off from its life source, and it's really worthless. There's no value to it. It blows away with the wind, and so are the wicked. That's what, that's what Psalm 1 says. Now, what we have in this passage that we've just read, it's a lengthy, it's a whole chapter. What we have in this chapter of Scripture are two scenes. There's a scene of rescue and a scene of blessing. Uh, and we're going to look at each of those scenes and see a profile of life lived in sin in one character and life lived in faithfulness in the other. And then we're going to move to the scene, of, scene two, the scene of blessing, and look at those same two things. Life lived in sin and life lived in faith in God. Okay, so that's the plan. But before we get to that, let's, let me just explain what's going on because it's, it's kind of, it may be a little confusing as you read. Um, basically, we've got world, his, world history has been inserted into Genesis chapter 14. Um, and you've got these kingdoms, and it's this massive stretch of land being described, reaching from the Black Sea, from like modern-day Turkey, all the way down to the Persian Gulf, covering the areas of like Iran, Iraq. So it's a huge swath of land. The land of Canaan is involved. This massive stretch of land, and there's kings and kingdoms. And there's four kings led by um, Cato Laomer. Uh, I see the word cheddar in there, so I'm going to call him the big cheese. He's like the, he, he, he's the, he's the big cheese. I mean, he's in charge of all these kingdoms. He's the leader of the world at this point in time. But there are six tribes and five kings that align with one another because they've had enough of the big cheese, and so they lead a revolt, including in, in, in that group, is the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And so, and, and they lead a revolt, but the big cheese bows up and after about a year of success, fights them back and fights them hard and he regains control and he pillages and plunders Sodom. They're running, the, the people of Sodom are running and it says that they fall in these bitumen pits, which are like uh, holes filled with, bitumen was like a tar-like substance that was used as a kind of mortar. So they fall into these pits. And then all of a sudden, verse 12, we see why, uh, why this is even in here. Because it's interesting history, but it seems like, what is this, how does this pertain to the life of Abram? And then verse 12, look at what it says. After, along with plundering Sodom, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. And they took his possessions, and they went their way. So, bad news for Lot. You remember last chapter we saw Lot and, and Abram, there was a conflict between Abram and Lot and they divided, uh, Lot, Abram said to Lot, take whatever land you want, go. Um, you can have it. And he chooses the land of Sodom. And now here he is, settled in Sodom, and he's been a, a, a casualty of this attack. But, verse 13, look at what happens. Somebody escapes and finds Abram, Lot's uncle, 
It says, we've got this problem. Lot has been captured. And here's what Abram does. He, he girds his loins. He mounts his war horse. He musters his 318 men, which were his fighting men. So, by the way, this gives us a, you know, we think of this caravan of Abram, and it's like, well, how big was this group? Well, he's got 318 servants that are warriors. So he gathers them. So it's a pretty big group if you kind of multiply that out. Um, so he, he gathers his men, and he's also made friends, friends with the Amorites. So Abram, his 318 men, and two of the Amorites uh, and their forces gather together and go to take on this really world enemy. I mean, it's, it's incredible the, ups, the, the upset that this is, because even though he has 318 men, he's taking on basically the world. I mean, this is, this is the king who's beat five other kingdoms and six tribes that we read here. And Abram's about to take them on. How is he going to succeed? Look at verse 15. Abram and his men, he divided his men and his forces against them. So they kind of take on these guerrilla tactics by night. And they defeat, they defeat them. The kingdom that the kings of Sodom and the kings of Gomorrah and the kings of all these other nations could not defeat. Abram defeats them. And not only that, look at verse 15 again. He pursues them. He chases them. He, they run, tuck, they, you know, tuck tail and run, and Abram's going after them to retrieve all that they've taken. He defeats them. He pursues them. He regains the possessions that they took. It's a major upset. In verse 16, he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. And then he receives blessings from the mysterious Melchizedek. That's scene two, the blessing of Melchizedek. And so that's the story, in a nutshell. That's the story. And like I said, we're going to take this story in two parts. Story, part one, scene one, the rescue. Scene two, the blessing. And in the rescue, we're going to look at how sin does what uh, Jonathan Edwards describes, right? Remember, sin makes us selfish. It contracts the heart. It confines it to the self while love enlarges the heart and extends it to others. We're going to get a little picture of that in these two scenes. So first, the scene of rescue, and the two characters are Lot and Abram. Now, as we've are beginning to see, and we will continue to see, Lot is foolish, and Lot is wicked. He's foolish, and he's wicked. Look at verse 12 again. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, and look at this, this is important, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. He's dwelling. Like, this word, Hebrew word here, has a very precise meaning. It means that he is um, settled. Lot is settled in Sodom. He's dwelling. He's like residing permanently, we might say. You know, if home is where the heart is, Lot has, we might say Lot has laid down his roots in Sodom. And there's a progression going on here. Look, look at back at chapter 13, verse 10, if you have your Bibles. It's not in the, in the order, but if you have your Bibles, look at ver chapter 13, verse 10. Abram says, Lot, go your way. You can have whatever land you want. And it says, chapter, chapter 13, verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he sees this beautiful 
well-watered area. It looks like the, the Garden of the Lord. It looks like the Garden of Eden. It looks like it reminds them also of the well-watered region of Egypt. And so Lot sees the beauty and the lushness and the life. And he, goes, he, he sets his eyes there in verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 13. He chooses it. So he sees it. He chooses it. And then look at verse 12 of chapter 13. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he's dwelling in tent, sort of on the margins near Sodom, not in it. Okay? And then a chapter later, chapter 14, verse 12, what is he doing? He's settled, he's dwelling, not temporarily established on the outside. He's in Sodom, living there. And this progression of seeing something, setting your heart on it, and taking it is a progression we've seen already. You know, remember the Eve when she sees the fruit on the tree? She sees that it was good, that it was beautiful, and she takes. The the exact same thing is described when the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, we looked at it last fall, these mysterious sons of God take the daughters of, of man as their wives, and it creates this bad sin. We don't know exactly what's going on, but it creates this sin, unprecedented sin in the world. And remember how it describes it? The sons of God see that the women, the daughters of men, are beautiful, are good, and they take. See, good, take. That's the progression of sin, according to Genesis. Lot saw the land, he saw that it was good, that it was beautiful, and he slowly but surely inches his way towards it, and he takes it, he settles. He dwells, is the word that's used. Verse 12 of chapter 14. He dwells. And we do the same. Our eyes often scan, looking for what can make us happy, looking for what seems to be beautiful, looking to what seems to be good. And we say, I want that power, or I want that person, I want that degree, I want that car, I want that house, I want that spouse, I want kids like that, I want that job, whatever it is. We, we, we look and we see and we set our hearts on it and we kind of inch our way towards it. We some, and we even sometimes begin to flirt with it. We oftentimes think of sin like a little puppy dog on a leash. You know, it's it's a it's a little pet that we have, and we you know we keep it on the leash. It doesn't run off. We kind of manage it there. We can kind of play around with it a little bit, toy with it. Uh, it may pee on the ground or poop on our feet, but you know we can clean that up. As long as we've got it on our leash, kind of manage it. That's not, how, that's not how God describes sin in the scriptures. You remember how he describes it in Genesis chapter 4? It's a crouching predator that's waiting for you to exit your door to attack. To go straight for the jugular. Like we, we don't manage sin. It, it's out to get us. To kill us. That's how the scriptures describe it. John Owen said, you need, if you're not killing sin, it's killing you. It's not neutral towards you. It's not a little puppy that you take on walks. 
and you clean up its messes every once in a while. That's not how it works. It will destroy you. And we see that Lot has inched his way closer, and he's now dwelling. And remember Psalm 1 again? It describes the wicked person as one who walks in the counsel of the wicked. They stand in the way of sinners. They sit in the seat of scoffers. Lot, by saying that Lot has been dwelling in this wicked land of Sodom that was described as a great wicked place and will be judged spectacularly in a few chapters, by saying that Lot is dwelling there, he's, he's walking in the counsel of the wicked. He's standing in the road of sinners. And he's sitting in the seat of scoffers. Right? He's dwelling amidst this wicked people. Now you may say, well, now wait a second. Jesus, though, he, dwelt, he, he was a friend of sinners. I mean, are you supposed to run for the hills and try to avoid all wickedness in the world? No, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And he spent a lot of time with them, right? But he wasn't dwelling with them. He wasn't walking in their way or sitting in their seats or s- sitting under their counsel. He wasn't doing that. Lot saw what he believed to be good and he took it. It was a slower progression as, than, than what Eve did when she took the fruit and what the, 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 um, the sons of God did when they took the daughters of men. It's a slower progression, but it's the exact same path. And it's the path that sin always takes. We see what is good and we take. And that's what Lot does. Remember, another way it describes it is that Lot moved east. And every time that's described, it's a movement away from God. To the east. And what happens is that when we follow sin, as, as Lot did, and dwell in it, it leads to a form of imprisonment. It leads to a type of capture and bondage and imprisonment. And that's where, that's where Lot now found himself imprisoned. What looked like a lush, wonderful guard now has him in a jail with all of his belongings gone. That's what sin does. It takes. It takes. It's like the leaf. Remember the leaf on the tree? Swaying in the wind. He's like, man, this this tree is so confining. I sit here and I look at this world. It's a world of opportunity. I just want to make like a leaf and leave. And it cuts off. And what happens? It begins to bend, wither, crumple, die. It begins to bend in on itself. Or think about a fish in water. A fish saying, man, these waters are too limiting, they're too confining. There's a whole world out there that looks pretty awesome. And the fish hops up somehow onto the shore. What happens? He gets cut off from its source of life. And he dies. That's what sin does. It, it's, it's an imprisonment. To follow it is to imprison ourselves and eventually die. And it makes sense, I mean, this, this is the mirage, right, of sin. It looks like, a, what looks like a paradise to Lot, the lushness of the Garden of Eden, becomes an impri- a, a prison for him. What looks like paradise is a wasteland. What looks like freedom is imprisonment. And it makes sense that there would be this mirage quality to sin, because remember, the whole thing's predicated on a lie, it was the father of lies that, you know, initiated the whole thing and, and, and sort of led to the sin entering. The, the whole thing's built on a lie. And so, of course, there would be this deceptive, 
quality to it. It makes you think you're in the driver's seat, but you're not. Right? You're playing with a, you've got a tiger by the tail, so to speak. Okay, so that's Lot, and that's a profile of, of Lot and his wickedness. Now let's look in contrast to Abram. What do we see Abram doing? He's being generous again. He's putting his life on the line for his nephew. He's being courageous. He's learned, he's learned that his nephew has been abducted and taken prisoner, and he doesn't say, sorry, Lot, you sleep in the bed you make. I let you go wherever you wanted to go, and you chose the better land, and now you're stuck in this predicament. Too bad, so sad. No, he doesn't do that at all. In fact, he says, okay, let's go get him. He rallies his, his men, and he boldly and bravely takes on a formidable foe. Now there's, so in other words, the faith of Abram is leading to the same kinds of behavior that we saw in the last chapter. Courage and generosity. He's, he's giving his life for his nephew to get him back or to get him freed. And he's doing it with courage. But there's an important difference. Remember last week what Abram did? He didn't really do anything, did he? He said, Lot, you choose. Take what you want. Last week, faith manifested itself in restful passivity. This week, faith is manifesting itself actively. Like, he's taken up a sword. Last week, Abram offered uh, Lot a, a, an olive branch of peace to restore his relationship with Lot. This week, he's taken up a sword to rescue Lot. And faith does both. Right? Faith calls us to both. Sometimes faith calls us to passively rest in the provision of God, and sometimes it calls us to take action. Now, I'm not saying that Christ is going to call us to take up swords, because that question was actually sort of dealt with in the New Testament. Peter took up a sword to fight for Christ. Remember? Chopping off ears. Uh, Paul said, look, our, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual powers and principalities of darkness. So there's a spiritual battle that we take, but we're not taking up swords as Abram did in this passage, but that doesn't mean we're not active, right? If a friend, a friend that we, we know and we love sort of disappears on us, and we know it's not good, we know that there's a history there, and when they disappear, it's maybe they've fallen back into these drug patterns or alcohol patterns or some kind of destructive pattern, we go find them. It's inconvenient. It defies kind of that modern sensibility that you don't invade on people's private lives. But, but, but love says, no, you do. You go after them. You take action. We, look, uh, tonight we have a membership meeting. You can still come to that at 6 to 8 tonight. Well, it's, it's on the back of your order of worship. But, you know, we believe membership's really important. And one of the reasons it's important to get into a church body, whether it's us or another church body, is because there will come a point in your life, maybe it's in your marriage, let's just say your marriage, where you, neither of you want to fight for your marriage. You're both sort of out. And that's when the church community comes in and says, no, we, we've we got to fight for this thing. This thing's important, this marriage. right? We, we need rescuers. And God has ordained us as his church to be agents of that rescue, 
in the lives of one another, to hold one another accountable, to poke and prod at times, then it won't feel good. You won't like it. But it's important. It's life-giving. It's part of your salvation, part of your sanctification in Christ is this process of being a member of a church and having accountability and for the church to take action as Abram has done in this, in this passage here. So the righteousness, being righteous, the way of faith makes us generous, it makes us courageous. And as we've seen this week, it propels us to loving action. It means that we do something. So let's move on to scene two, the scene of blessing. And the two characters that we have in this scene are Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. Now, Melchizedek, his name literally means king of righteousness. He's kind of a mysterious character. He becomes a a model of Israel's priesthood. And Jesus is identified in the book of Hebrews as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this guy? We don't know. And we won't go into all the details of it. But know this. As the text here describes, he is a priest of God Most High. And what does he do in this passage? He brings Abram a meal, bread and wine. And look at what else he does. Verses 19 and 20. He blesses Abram. He brings a blessing to Abram. And this is what he says. These are the first words out of his mouth. Blessed be Abram. This is verse 19. By God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Notice that that Melchizedek recognizes that Abram's success against the kingdoms of the world is not rooted in Abram's military strategy or the strength of his men or the fact that he attacked them by night. It's rooted in God most high and his favor upon Abram. See that? Blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And this is really important. The faithful, the faithful, they know where their blessing comes from. And it's not them. They know that their blessing comes from from one outside of themselves. That it's a gift. That it's given. I mean, think about the tree. Remember, again, Psalm 1, the tree that's planted by streams of water. How does that tree flourish and bless others? It's not because of the tree. It's because of the tree's roots in something outside of themselves, the streams. And how did the tree get planted there? Did the tree think, well, I'm going I'm to go find a stream of water, a little baby tree running through the wilderness to find a stream of water? No! The tree's planted there. It's something outside of the tree that roots the tree in the streams of water. And so it is with God's grace. Like Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, and Abram both are keenly aware that they are planted in God's grace. You know, again, why do we confess our sins and assure ourselves of our pardon in Christ every week? Because every time we do that, it's like a hammer blow, driving our hearts and our souls and our whole beings deeper into the, into the grace of God, driving us deeper into the stream of his mercy. That's what it's doing. And as we do that, we, we grow up like that tree planted by streams of water. 
Well, look at the king of Sodom's response. By contrast. He, he, he's a wicked king because remember the land that he, he's head over is wicked itself. So he is wicked. Look at verse 21. The first words out of the king of... The first words out of Melchizedek's mouth are words of blessing. Look at the first words out of the king of Sodom's mouth. Give me. Give me. Remember? Sin cuts us off from life with God and it bends us in on ourselves and all the king of Sodom can think about is me. Give me. He's... His whole life is being lived in orbit around his wants, his desires, his needs. Me, me, give me. I mean, think about it. He, the king of Sodom has just been saved dramatically. I mean, all the kingdoms of the world, Abram's not even a blip on their radar. They didn't consult Abram to join forces with them against the big cheese. They didn't, they didn't do that. Abram's just like a, an unknown factor in all of this. And yet, he's just rescued all of these kingdoms from this foe. You would think that there would be thanks on the part of the king of Sodom. Like falling down at Abram's feet and saying, weeping in gratitude. And instead he says, give me, verse 21, he's demanding, give me the persons, you take the goods for yourself. Okay, they're talking about the spoils of war, right? We've got all this stuff, how is it going to be divvied up between us. And here's the thing. The king of Sodom, he's, he's dictating the, ter- the loser is dictating the terms of how all this works out. That's not, the, that's not what the loser does. <laughs> that's not the loser's prerogative to do that. Uh, you know, you, you take the goods, we'll take the people. Come on. No. Abram has just saved the king of Sodom and rather than the king of Sodom bowing in faith, bowing in thanks, he, he, um, he starts talking about how they're going to divide the spoils. And Abram says, nope, I'm only taking what my men need. We've depleted ourselves in this war. And we're going to take what we need to get back to health and, and rejuvenate ourselves. But you take, you take, I'm not even going to take a strap from your sandal. I don't want you to say that you made me rich. I'm resting in God and his provision. So there, there you have it. Sin cuts and it bends us in on ourselves. And what, is, what does faith do? What do we see for the people of faith in these passages? Melchizedek and Abram. They're rooted and they're extending outward in blessing and rescue. Jonathan Edwards again. Selfishness and sin contract the heart. They confine it to the self while love enlarges the heart. And extends it to others. So here's the question as we close. Who are you in this story? Who are you? I think probably the best character for us to identify with in this story is Lot. We're Lot. We looked. We took what we saw to be good. And we opted out of life with God. That's what the scriptures say, that we were all enemies of God, that we could turn to God, but we we opted out of that, and we took our own course, and and we got trapped. We got trapped. We got captured. We're going to sing a hymn in just a few moments. It's It's a wonderful hymn, and can it be? Listen to how it describes our state. This is a Charles Wesley hymn, and he puts it well. Listen to what he says. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, 
imprisoned spirit laying there, fast bound in sin in nature's night. I was, I was in a dungeon. I was chained to the wall. This is what sin had done to me. It locked me up, chained me to the wall. I'm dead. And then what did God, what did God do? He came and he rescued us. Thine eye diffused a life-giving ray, a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. While we were enemies of God, Jesus Christ came into this world. He came into enemy territory. And he conquered the great enemy, sin and Satan, in order to ransom us back. Jesus was cut. He was cut off from his people. His his own brothers pinned him to the cross, his own kinsmen. He was cut off from his people. He was cut off from his disciples who abandoned him in his time, in his hour of need. But even more profoundly, he was cut off by God. Remember what he says on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was also bent. He, he, he was twisted and contorted upon the cross. But even more profoundly, he, he bent under the, the, the compounding and cumulative weight of all the world's sin bearing down on him on that cross. And he did it so that we could connect with him, so that we could grow up in him, so that we could be planted by him, planted in his streams of righteousness, drawing from his righteousness so that we, here's here's the effect, we are actually made righteous and we grow up and we become a tree of righteousness, a tree of life, the Proverbs say to the world. We become a blessing. Let's pray as we can close. Our Father, we give you thanks for this word. It's powerful. We pray that its strength and power would be um, communicated by your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.